Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. It is human nature to desire praise to be acknowledged for the things we do and even be rewarded accordingly. We want people to value our work and to respond with bonuses, raises, or the occasional promotion. Or at least we want a pat on the back, some verbal recognition of a job well done. If we don't get anything like that, our attitude, and then our work will likely suffer, and we might just be looking for another job to do. We want the same thing at home, minus the financial incentives, of course, but we want our family to recognize the work we do around the house. If you don't believe me, try telling your stay-at-home wife that she doesn't do anything, or ask her what she does all day. And after a look that you will remember, she is sure to begin recounting all of the things that she does on a daily basis. Or what marriage has not had multiple arguments through the years about who does what and who is pulling their weight and who is not, or who hasn't been discouraged thinking the kids take for granted all that you do for them. Some in my life group last week were discussing how, how great it is when once grown kids finally come back to you and simply say thank you because they finally realize all of the various things you did for them through the years. The same thing takes place in the church where we serve as volunteers and yet we still want to be noticed and appreciated. We know that we are doing the work for the Lord, or to use the terminology we've seen in this series, we are doing it for the kingdom of God, and yet it is nice to be noticed by others, for others to see our effort and respond accordingly. That's why we try to do some appreciation events through the years for all of you who serve in some way. It's not to repay you for what you've done. It is simply to acknowledge and let you know that we know and we appreciate it. So no matter the setting or whether there is pay involved or not, when we do something, and especially when we do something well, we want to be appreciated. Such appreciation motivates us to continue working and to continue serving and to continue giving it our best. But when that is lacking, to use biblical language, we can lose heart and start not doing our best and eventually quit altogether. How many people are no longer serving the Lord in any capacity in the church because they felt underappreciated And so they stopped. This morning we are concluding our series on some of the lesser known parables of Jesus. This has certainly not been exhaustive, that is there are other parables, but many of those, especially the well-known ones we've done in other series in the past, and there are other parables that are so similar to the ones we've done that it simply doesn't necessitate a separate sermon 
So we've seen throughout this that a lot of the parables have as their setting the first century home. And in that home, there are servants and masters. And that is our setting again today. But our task is not to critique that first century arrangement, but to learn the spiritual truths that Jesus is proclaiming. Now, for our title today, I'm going back to my college days, which means some of you will well remember the reference, and it actually might be distracting. Others of you will have no idea what I'm talking about, and you will be tempted to Google the reference. I encourage you not to do that, at least not in the service. You will use your data up if you do, because we do not have Wi-Fi in here, because we don't want you on the internet while we are in here. So don't Google it until later. In 1989, there was a sketch that aired first on Saturday Night Live, featuring two long-haired young men with aspirations of becoming rock stars. They never fulfilled their dreams, but the sketch did lead to a movie some years later, perhaps even two. But in these sketches, they somehow randomly came across a real rock star, and they were starstruck in the presence of these stars, eventually leading them to the phrase that became famous and recurred in every skit that they did. The sketch's name was Wayne's World, and the famous line from that sketch that they said every time was, we're not worthy. In the presence of some rock star, they determined that they were not worthy to be in his presence. That's our title today. We're not worthy. So again, some of you are distracted, and now you're thinking about other old SNL skits. Others of you are a bit perturbed that I would dare to use one in reference of a sermon. But either way, look at Luke chapter 17, and we are going to be in verses 7 through 10 today as we discover we're not worthy. Luke 17, verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. First thing we need to talk about this morning is the work of the servant. And by that, I do mean the work that is done in this parable. But not only that, I'm talking about the work in our own lives as well. Again, the setting here is the first century home, but this time, It seems to be much smaller. This is not a mansion with all kinds of unnumbered servants doing all kinds of things. This is a smaller home, and there is but one servant who obviously is having to multitask in order to meet the demands of the master. So he has been out in the field plowing or tending sheep. It really doesn't matter for our purposes this morning exactly what he was doing, but he comes in and in from the field, and that is where our story takes place. 
So the question is, what happens when this man comes in, having worked outside in the heat of the day all day long, what transpires when he comes home? Well, if it's 1960s America, his wife is waiting with dinner prepared. She's all fixed up, of course, and he is invited to recline in his recliner with the newspaper of the day. If it is 2022, perhaps he picked something up on the way home, and he is now eating whatever it is he picked up on the way home while watching reruns on ESPN, and he has no idea where his wife is, and he really doesn't even care. But in our parable, the man comes home, and the question is, when he gets home, does his master serve him? Or when he gets home, does his master say, I need some supper? And so it's your responsibility to get cleaned up, to fix me some supper, and to provide what I need. He's simply not going to uh, be served by the master. That is not how the system worked. Now, again, we are not commending the system nor commenting on it at all. We are simply trying to figure out the truth that Jesus is proclaiming by using this story. So the truth is that the servant is expected to continue to serve. He is expected to meet the needs of his master no matter what else he's done all day. And only after he has met the needs of his master will he be able to relax and have dinner himself. So let's pause here for just a moment and consider the fact that all of us in the kingdom of God are servants. So rather than try to make our application at the end today, I'm going to try to make it in the, the three points as we go along. So we need to understand that we are in this story. And we are in this story as the servant because if we are part of the kingdom of God, then we are servants. Every member of the kingdom of God is a servant of the king. There are no exceptions. There are no sideline observers. You know, they say that the, the best job in the NFL is the backup quarterback. I know some of you want to be the starting quarterback. You want to be the star. You want to get all the accolades and all the attention. I would be perfectly happy being a backup quarterback. And they say it's the best job because they make millions of dollars for standing on the sidelines, holding a clipboard, and uh, relaying signs to the starter, all the while not getting hit by bigger men. So that sounds pretty good to me. But in the kingdom of God, there are no sideline observers. There are no backup quarterbacks who don't do much when it comes to the game. These kind of roles do not exist in God's kingdom. We are all servants engaged in the work of the king. Now, granted, our roles are different. Some are more public, while others are more private. That is, some are noticed for what they do. Others toil in obscurity. So our roles are different. Our gifting is different. And yet we are all gifted in some way. Some people seem to be gifted in a multitude of ways. Other people struggle to figure out what their gift is. But make no mistake about it, all of God's children are gifted to serve in God's kingdom. This is clearly articulated in multiple scriptures on a number of occasions. After explaining that there are a variety of gifts in a variety of service, Paul states to the church in Corinth, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That means all of us are gifted for the benefit of everyone else. 
he concludes that section by saying, all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So the question for every believer is not, am I a servant? The question is, where should I serve? All of us should know our gifts and abilities. We should know what our passions and our drives are. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to say yes to everything someone asks you to do. It doesn't mean that every time someone asks you to volunteer in some capacity that you are compelled to say yes. In fact, it means just the opposite. It means that we ought to know where we are gifted and how we are, uh, what abilities we are given so that we can say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things so that we can serve more effectively in the way that God has gifted and wires us. Now, all of that presupposes another truth, which I do not mind sharing. This principle of every member of the kingdom serving in the kingdom means that you must be actively involved in a local church. I am not saying that there are not other uh, acts of service that you can do, even kingdom-minded acts of service outside of the church. There are. But principally, our work for the king in the kingdom ought to be in and through a local church, that place where you plant your life among other believers and work side by side with them. Again, Paul says that each is gifted for the common good, that is for the benefit of the body, so that your gifts are strengthening and encouraging others as you use them, and the same thing is happening with you. You're being encouraged and strengthened as others are using their gift. And as the church as a whole does this, we are all prospering because different members are using their different gifts for the benefit of the whole, all serving the same king. So before we go any further in this parable, even before we get to the main point, which is the attitude of the servant. That's going to be the third point, and that is the main point that is being made here. But we need to stop first and say, are we actually serving? Because the ultimate application of the attitude of the servant cannot be made if we are not actually serving. So this is not something for you to consider. I'm not asking you to pray if you should serve within the local church. I already know the answer to that. You don't need to pray. You simply need to discover how God has gifted you and therefore where you could best serve because every member of the kingdom of God, and that's been what a lot of these parables have been about, but every member of the kingdom of God is also a servant of the king. So where are you serving? So that's the work of the servant. Secondly, we need to talk about the reward of the servant. Now that might be a little bit confusing, because you might at first glance think, well, isn't this parable telling us that there will be no rewards? Well, that is not exactly what it's teaching. And that's why I included this point in our story. Our story does continue with a rhetorical question. Does the master thank the servant for doing what he was commanded to do? And the implied answer is no. That is just not how the relationship works. Now, that's not to say that some kind masters couldn't, but it is simply to say that it was not their obligation. The servant doing what he was commanded to do does not in any way place the master under his obligation. 
He is not due any honor. He is not due any reward for simply doing what he was supposed to do. And therefore, he has no right to expect nor demand anything from his master. Now, here's where we need to make a slight distinction. Because oftentimes when we talk in the New Testament about the slave-master relationship, we try our best to apply it to our own relationships, and therefore we apply it to the employer-employee relationship, the boss and the employee. And in many cases, that's very easy to do and is certainly correct, but not so exactly here. So this is not encouraging an employer to take his or her employees for granted. This is not if you're a boss saying to you, as long as you pay them, then that's good enough. They shouldn't expect anything else. After all, an employer who doesn't recognize and appreciate his or her employees will find that their morale begins to suffer and gets low. And in this current environment where there seems to be jobs everywhere, they will simply leave you and find another job elsewhere where they do feel like they are appreciated. So armed with this parable that maybe you weren't familiar with before today, don't storm into the office tomorrow and say, things are about to change around here. This is not a story about best business practice nor interpersonal relationships. Plus, other passages tell us that Christian bosses or employers are to be kind to their employees, and therefore we have to be careful with how we apply it here. So where do I get the idea of the reward of the servant from a parable that says you aren't owed anything, nor is the master obligated to the servant? Well, I want to draw from the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. That is, I want to look elsewhere to make sure we don't misunderstand what is being told in this parable. And so we want to look at some other Scriptures, not necessarily turning there, that tell us there are indeed rewards, not that they are owed to us, not that we deserve them, but that God in his grace has said that he will reward his servants, though that is not our motivation, nor is it our goal. Now, the majority of these rewards for service are promised for the future, meaning that they will be received and enjoyed in heaven. We don't like to hear that because we tend to want immediate rewards. In fact, psychologists will tell you that. Psychologists will tell you that if you don't immediately reward your children, then they're not going to make the connection between whatever it is they've done and your reward. And so in order for it to be effective, it has to be rather immediate. But I trust we're more mature than children, and we can have the faith that God will reward us in the future. The greatest reward, of course, is the very presence of God that we get the privilege of being with him and living with him forever. Again, keep in mind that this is not meritorious. That is, you did not earn it. Eternal life, as we say often, is a free gift from God. And yet, at the same time, we can call it a reward as long as we remember that we are in the kingdom by his grace and we are servants to the king. Paul and other New Testament writers talk about several crowns. Crowns given to those who faithfully serve the Lord in recognition for his or her service. Crowns that we will happily lay at the feet of Jesus because we recognize that we're not worthy of such recognition. 
And we can be sure that the God who promises these rewards will not forget, but will in fact deliver on his promises. The writer of Hebrews says, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. There are also, of course, rewards in this life. And those rewards are just as varied as the different kinds of service. There is the reward of seeing others come to faith in Christ. There is the reward of seeing people grow in their relationship with Christ. You Sunday school teachers know that. It might be frustrating in a few moments when the class isn't paying attention, but five or ten years from now when you see especially that child who's grown and matured now and is actively serving the Lord, that is a reward in and of itself. There is the reward of simply being part of God's kingdom and being privileged to serve. Paul faced many struggles in his Christian life, but he also talked about the joy of serving in the church. So let's let the expert have the final say on this point. The rewards of the servant. And I'm not the expert. But I've come across people throughout the years who don't like this idea of we will be rewarded for our service. They say that's not why we do it. That's not what it's all about. And I will agree with that. It is not why we do it. But the, the thought is that God himself has promised these rewards. Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So Jesus takes a, a, meaning, a, a menial task, an insignificant act of service, and that is giving someone a cup of cold water. And he says, if you're doing that in the name of Christ, even that small act of service will not be forgotten. It will be remembered and it will be rewarded, which is why the Bible tells us, do not lose heart. Do not grow weary in doing good. Until you hear the king say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. All of that leads us to the third point, which is the main point of this story, and that is the attitude of the servant. Now, I've tried to say throughout that these rewards are, are not our motivation, they are not our goal, they are not our emphasis. I kept saying that because while I wanted to acknowledge that they are promised and they will be given, just so we have a balance of what this story is talking about, they ought not to be our focus. And we would never expect them if they were not promised because we know we deserve nothing. If you happen to have a study Bible of some sort, you might notice the heading there in this particular section. It's two words, unworthy servants. And that is why this has become known as the parable of the unworthy servants. Frankly, we don't like either one of those words. Perhaps that's, this, perhaps that's the reason I've never preached on this parable. We've already talked about the fact in previous sermons that we don't like the idea of being a servant. We prefer to be the master. We prefer for others to be serving us. We do not like the idea that we are to serve, even though Jesus himself said, I came not to, not to be served, but to serve. And again, if we claim to be his followers, then our task is to be like him, and he is a servant. But we especially don't like the unworthy part because that seems to be very demeaning and degrading. 
We want to be worthy. We want to have value. We don't want to be worthless or unworthy or useless. But is that what Jesus means by the word unworthy here? That we have no value nor worth? That doesn't sound like Jesus' attitude toward us, does it? It is certainly true that we are not worthy of the salvation that God gives us freely and graciously. That is why we say that we are saved by grace, not merit. It is undeserved and given to us as a free gift. We are unworthy of receiving it. So we are not worthy to be in the kingdom of God, and we are certainly not even worthy to be servants in that kingdom because God could accomplish all of his goals without using us at all. But God has chosen to use us as his servant in, in spite of our unworthiness, and that is not only grace, that is love. Now, certainly you can make the case that even as servants we are unworthy because we are often fickle in our faith. Sometimes we believe rather strongly. Other times we have great doubts. At some points of our lives, we are determined to grow spiritually. At other points, we are apathetic and lethargic. Our obedience and rebellion whipsaws back and forth quicker than any of us would like to admit. And while all of that might be true, it's not exactly what is in mind in this parable. The point here is simply that as a servant, no matter how faithful nor well we serve the master, he is in no way obligated to us. We can never put the master in our debt because of our years of service. Now, most of us would never use that terminology, but the attitude is prevalent on a much more subtle tone. Around midlife, we begin to look over our lives trying to determine whether or not we've been productive, whether or not we've been successful, whether or not we have achieved our dreams and goals. And most of us come to terms with the fact that we've not fulfilled everything that we had planned. And so it's very easy to begin thinking to ourselves, you know what, I've been faithful to God for all of these years. I've given, I've gone to church, I've taught this or that, and now my health is not what it used to be. I see others my age, others my age who are not faithfully serving the Lord, and their health seems to be just fine. Is this what I get for serving God faithfully? Or we look around at our family, the family that we've sacrificed and prayed for all of these years. We raised them in church. We taught them the faith. We saw them baptized. But now they'll only come to church on special occasions, really just to quiet our nagging at them. They show no desire to follow God, no interest in church at all. Is this what I get for putting my faith and family first? For making sure that my kids were in church all of those years and now they have no desire to follow God? I've sacrificed and I've given to the work of the kingdom. I prioritize God's work over even my own but now I can barely make ends meet. And with the uncertainty in the economy, who knows if I'm gonna have enough money next year to buy my medicine and food. Is that how God rewards me for all of my years of service? I want you to know that you're not alone in thinking these thoughts or others just like them. Some, of course, have taken these thoughts to the next level and they no longer serve the Lord. They quit 
believing that God has not held up his end of the bargain by giving them the things they wanted in exchange for their faithful service. The truth of the matter is they had the wrong attitude. They weren't familiar with this particular parable or simply didn't apply it. They wrongly believed that faithful service to the Lord put God in our debt, though we would never use those terms, that somehow God owes us a life of health and happiness or prosperity or whatever the particular desire might be. And again, I understand that mentality. I fight against it just like you do. It is the natural way of our minds. You remember on multiple occasions, the 12 disciples argued about who was going to be greatest in God's kingdom. They wanted to be rewarded for their service and sacrifice just like we do. On another occasion, they were jockeying for position, wanting the best seats next to Jesus. So much so that the mother of two brothers who were disciples went to Jesus trying to curry favor on their behalf. Again, it's another example of something I say often, that the hearts of men really haven't changed. This is another case of a kingdom mindset that is so different from the normal that we have a hard time accepting it and certainly applying it. At the end of the day, no matter how much we've done, Jesus says our attitude as a servant is that we have merely done our duty. There are no expectations for honor, no designs on special favors by the master. If such things come, and in many cases they will, they too are grace and they too are undeserving. But we can never serve or do anything to put God in our debt. He does not owe you another breath. He does not owe you another dollar. He does not owe you another dream. He does not owe you another chance. And it is only as we have this attitude that we can truly be grateful for what he does give us. Otherwise, we will scoff at even what he gives, thinking that it's not enough. This is the time of year when most companies and churches other organizations begin thinking about the raises that they want to give for their employees for the next year. Some will receive nothing because, frankly, they haven't earned it, but they won't like that conclusion. Others will receive small raises because that's all the company can afford. Still, others will receive what is historically a good raise, and it won't be enough because they will simply say, that doesn't make up for 8% inflation. My point is simply that we are not grateful for what we do receive regardless of the amount because we always expect more. We always expect more because in our own minds, we deserve it. Our estimation of our own value always seems to go higher than those who are actually the making the decisions about our races. Now, don't get me wrong, God does value you, and you are worth enough that he sent his son to die on behalf of your sins. But he didn't owe you that, nor does he owe you anything else. So at the end of the day, our attitude must be, we are unworthy servants who have merely done our duty. Now, as we bring an end to this series, I do want to remind you of two things we've talked about throughout First, we've seen that a large portion of these parables were told to teach us something about the kingdom of God. And so the question is, are you, in, are you part of that kingdom? 
have you by faith repented of your sins and trusted in Christ so that you are a citizen of the kingdom. Remember, we said that the invitation goes out to all. It is indiscriminate, but you must accept it. You must RSVP and enter the kingdom of God. Secondly, if you are a member, do you realize that this means that you are not just a member, but you are also a servant of the king? All members of the kingdom are servants of the king. So your responsibility is to find your place of service, to serve there faithfully and joyfully until Christ calls you home or Christ returns, at the same time realizing that such service does not put God at your disposal. He owes us nothing. We are unworthy servants, ready and willing to say, we're not worthy because we realize we serve the only one who is worthy. So may we then serve him to his glory and not for our own. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you have counted us as part of your kingdom, not because we are worthy, but because Christ is. The only one who is worthy has by grace made us part of your kingdom, anointing us as servants on your behalf. May you remind us of that. Not that we would feel unworthy because we know you value us immensely, but so that we don't think that you owe us more, that we don't somehow think that our faithful service puts you in our debt, but instead we will be grateful for anything you give because we know we are not worthy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.